Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the dark side of American law, embodied in the firm that helped get Donald Trump elected, then governed while evading investigations as they led the right-wing takeover of the courts. Meanwhile, Jones Day protected opioid makers and gun companies, as well as big tobacco, along with Russian oligarchs, Fox News, and the Catholic Church. Joining us is David Enrich, an author and finance editor at the New York Times. He has won numerous journalism awards, including the 2016 Gerald Loeb Award for feature writing. His previous books include The Spider Network, How a Math Genius and a Gang of Scheming Bankers Pulled Off the Greatest Scam in History, and Dark Towers, Deutsche Bank, Donald Trump, and an Epic Trail of Destruction. And we will discuss his latest book, Just Out, Servants of the Damned, Giant Law Firms, Donald Trump, and the Corruption of Justice. Then, with the head of the EU vowing that, quote, Putin will fail and Europe will prevail as Russian gas is cut off and household energy bills skyrocket, we'll look into what alternative supplies might reach Western Europe to avoid a cold winter and speak with Dr. Paul Sullivan, a senior fellow at the Global Energy Center at the Atlantic Council. His current research focuses on EU energy security, EU-Russian energy relations and Arctic energy issues, and he was a full professor at the National Defense University for over 22 years, where he ran the energy industry study, and he also taught at Georgetown, the American University in Cairo and Yale, and is now at Johns Hopkins University. Then finally, we'll assess whether the Ukrainian counteroffensive will rout the Russian invaders or provoke Putin to escalate to cyber or nuclear, as the Kremlin acknowledges failures but shields Putin from blame while scapegoating Russia's Ministry of Defense. Joining us is Emily Channel Justice, the director of the Timurti Contemporary Ukraine Program at the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard University, a sociocultural anthropologist who has been doing research in Ukraine since 2012 and is now focusing on displaced people. Her forthcoming book is Without the State, Self-Organization and Political Activism in Ukraine. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now, David Enrich, who's an author and finance editor at the New York Times. He has won numerous journalism awards, including the 2016 Gerald Loeb Award for Feature Writing. His previous books include The Spider Network, How a Math Genius and a Gang of Scheming Bankers Pulled Off One of the Greatest Scams in History, and Dark Towers, Deutsche Bank, Donald Trump, and the Epic Trail of Destruction. And his latest book just out is Servants of the Damned, Giant Law Firms, Donald Trump, and the Corruption of Justice. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Enrich. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And your book is about the giant law firm, Jones Day, which has, what, 2,500 lawyers in about a dozen countries around the world, and they have 
helped protect opioid makers, gun companies, worked for Big Tobacco and for Russian oligarchs, Fox News, the Catholic Church, and of course they helped Donald Trump get elected and stacked his administration with key people like Don McGahn, the White House lawyer. Uh, (laughs) I mean, that litany in itself is enough to make you wonder about them. And what is the situation now then with them? Have they, at this point, having lost Ben Ginsburg and other prominent Republicans, are they having any kind of come-to-Jesus moment, or are they still sticking with this wrecking ball, Donald Trump, who's now looking as if he might well be guilty of not just criminality, but treason? So that's a good question with Trump, and it's, that's, I've done a few of these interviews already, and that, that's typically where we've ended the interview, and so you're getting to it right uh, at the outset. And unfortunately, the answer is I don't know. Um, Jones Day has especially in recent months, not been particularly forthcoming with me related to their current uh, involvement with Trump. What I do know is that as of at least in the past few months, they've continued to receive money, fees, from various Trump political action committees and campaign committees and things like that. And so at the very least, they are still receiving money from Trump world. Whether they are actually still doing legal work, and I think another related question is whether they would still do legal work were he uh, to announce that he's running for president in 2024. And the answer to those questions is, I don't know because they won't tell me. Um, but w- what is definitely clear is that regardless of whether or not they are going to be working or are working for Trump directly. What, what they are doing is representing in a number of different capacities, uh, people from the Trump network and politicians in the Trump network, whether it's you know working for a super PAC that is supporting Herschel Walker down in Georgia or uh, Ron Johnson, the, uh, the Wisconsin Senator, Kevin McCarthy in the House, uh, and the list goes on and on of the, the people from kind of the Trump wing of the Republican Party that Jones Day is currently on their payroll, essentially. So and when Ben Ginsburg left the firm and said to Steve Brogan, the head of the firm, that uh, I mean, this is before he left, actually, he complained about Trump's language being beyond the pale. That's putting it mildly, and that was early on before this avalanche of of yep. bad news arrived. So, I mean, lawyers obviously have to represent clients, you know, even murderers and rapists, etc. But in this case, this is a sort of white shoe law firm. You think reputation means something to them? Yeah, you, I mean, that is, I think reputation does mean a lot to them. I mean, they, they view it slightly differently in that they think that they have an obligation to represent to basically stick with their clients no matter what. And here's the interesting thing, though. And you you mentioned that lawyers represent murderers and terrorists and things like that, which is obviously true. And I think that is one of the things that makes the American justice system and the American legal system work so well. But Trump in these cases uh, is not accused of murder or terrorism. In fact, he's not even accused of anything in the work that Jones Day is representing him on. They are working and have or had been working anyway to help him win elections. 
And that is something that, you know, we all take very seriously, the notion that everyone is entitled to competent legal counsel. But the framers of the Constitution, and I don't think really very many legal scholars today, would argue that the legal services to which people are entitled encompasses the wide range of out-of-court services that Jones Day and other law firms have been providing to people like Trump or to other uh, uh, aspiring elected officials. And there's, this is, people are entitled under the constitution to, when they're accused of crimes, they're entitled to competent legal counsel, which incidentally they often don't get because so many of the best and brightest lawyers in the country are lured to these huge corporate law firms with enormous paydays. And then they go work for big companies, essentially work for big companies rather than people who are actually accused of crimes and can't afford expensive legal counsel. But the, the, a lot of the work that today's mega law firms are doing really is way outside, even the most expansive definition of what you would consider services to which an individual or an organization is legally or ethically entitled. But if Jones Day's um, expertise was in uh, elections and getting Republicans elected, you couldn't have anybody better than Ginsburg. And he's left largely because he didn't want to be involved in helping a demagogue destroy democracy. Yeah, that's right. And I think, look, they've, one of the, the fascinating things that's happened during the, over, the, uh, over the course of the Trump years is that while Gin, so Ben Ginsburg is someone who is kind of a legend in Republican political circles, and he had been the lead lawyer on for both of uh, George W. Bush's presidential campaigns. He was the lead lawyer on Romney's presidential campaign in 2012, and so he is kind of regarded as probably the the dean of the Republican uh, political bar in Washington. Um, but by the time he left, he had been, I think, eclipsed by some of the other people who, some of his former colleagues at Jones Day, who had really have taken on, had become the next generation of Republican super lawyers. And so at the very top of that list is probably Don McGahn, who had, uh, who's a Jones Day partner and who had been uh, Trump's White House counsel. There's a guy named Noel Francisco, who was a Jones Day partner, then went to be the solicitor general in the Trump administration, then came back to Jones Day and is one of the most uh, prominent Republican litigators in the country. There's another guy named Mike Carvin, who is a really well-known and prominent uh, kind of conservative firebrand who is regularly arguing cases before the Supreme Court. And so and Jones Day has, in part because of the work, the high-profile work it did for Trump, which you know, a substantial portion of the country, I think, would have found to be, uh, you know, to put it mildly, very controversial. Uh, in certain Republican circles and conservative circles, that actually has become the firm's calling card because they are now known as a law firm that is not only not afraid to stick up for unpopular clients, which I think is probably a noble thing about lawyers in general, but but also is willing to really go the extra mile, including in for uh, for clients that are, you know, in some cases viewed as really outside of uh, polite society, I guess. But David Enrich, what is though the other sort of glue here in terms of McGahn and Leonard Leo and the Federalists uh, and Mitch McConnell, the extent to which they've stacked the federal bench with Federalist judges, and now we've had mm -hmm. a really example of the very worst of what they do with Judge Eileen Cannon down there in Florida, who's clearly unqualified. 
uh, and made the most bizarre ruling that almost all legal analysts find extraordinary. She gave Trump more than he wanted, and it's led to the assumption among many that Trump did judge shopping, found a judge that he thought would rule in his favor, and guess what? He got more than he asked for. Mm-hmm. So, I, so this goes... In the case of the McGann-McConnell Federalist Society axis, I mean, that goes back to in 2015-2016 when McGahn had only recently arrived at Jones Day to start a practice focused on helping Republicans win elections. And one of his first clients was the Trump campaign, which at that point no one was really taking seriously. But McGahn was someone who had a really strong set of core beliefs about what what he wanted to see in federal judges. And so, and Trump was someone who is not, you know, particularly burdened by strong beliefs on that topic or many others. And so McGahn, I think, viewed the Trump campaign as kind of a vessel that he could inhabit. And as Trump's campaign became uh, more serious and after Justice Scalia died, which was, as you may recall, in the spring of 2016, so right in the heat of the presidential campaign, McGahn helped take advantage of that opportunity to really show that the Trump campaign was something that uh, the conservative wing of the Republican Party should be comfortable with. And the way they did that was they came up with a list that Trump publicly released. That was basically a list that Jones Day and the Federalist Society, officials from both of those organizations, had worked to come up with that would, it was just a, a list of real, I don't want to say hard right, judges because that's maybe overstating it a little bit but 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 very reliably conservative judges uh that trump pledged that he would pick from that list uh to fill supreme court vacancies and and one thing led to another trump gets elected and in as he is trying to staff his white house he picks he offers the job of white house counsel to don mcgahn and mcgahn says i'll accept that on the following conditions which is that unlike in previous administrations when there's a committee basically inside the White House that deliberates over which people to nominate for which courts. McGahn wanted that power delegated solely to him. And Trump agreed to that. And so McGahn enters the White House. He brings a whole crew of Jones Day lawyers with him. Uh, and together they come up with a list of not just people for the Supreme Court, but people for uh, federal appeals courts, federal district courts all over the country that are they hew very rigidly to the type of judges that the Federalist Society likes. And in fact, McGahn has said publicly that he that everyone who was working for him in the White House Counsel's office was a member of the Federalist Society. And there's one event where he he tells this little joke. He's actually told this over and over again. Little joke that he kind of grum he, he doesn't he gets irritated when people on the left criticize him for supposedly having outsourced the job of picking judges to the Federalist Society. And McGahn then says, we didn't outsource it, we insourced it. And And I I think the openness with which McGahn talks about that is really telling, because this is not in his world, and in, I think, conservative worlds, this is not a secret. This is something that they are really proud of and really good at. And what's so interesting to me about this is that a big kind of white shoe law firm like Jones Day, which is, as you said, has thousands of attorneys, many of whom are not Republicans. And yet the firm at the upper levels is largely, uh, it largely consists of conservative Republicans. And they have, they're exerting just enormous 
influence over the course of national affairs. And they, they certainly were during the Trump administration. And I think probably will again uh, if the next president is a Republican. Well, I would say a 6-3 majority on the Supreme Court, is, <laughs> if they can take credit for that, they've really achieved their goals, have they not? Yeah, I think to a large extent that's right. And uh, although, you know, there are still lots of other courts throughout the country that I think they would like um, to, uh, you know, reconstitute as well. But in the three conservative justices that the, that Trump nominated, and two of those, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, were handpicked by McGahn. And the third, Amy Coney Barrett, is someone who, uh, while McGahn was White House counsel, she was kind of plucked out of academic obscurity for a federal appeals court job with the, I don't think the explicit understanding, but it was kind of known that she would be a leading contender uh, if there was another vacancy on the court. And of course, Ginsburg dies and that vacancy materializes. And it's hard. I mean, the, there's a tremendous amount of kind of professional, social, and philosophical overlap between people like Amy Coney Barrett and the leaders of Jones Day. And there is uh, a, a, an anecdote I've heard and reported on where the day after Roe v. Wade was overturned this uh, early this summer, um, Barrett went up to New York and uh, to attend a party. And the party was hosted, it was a 50th birthday party that was hosted by one of the most senior partners at Jones Day. And in fact, someone who's a candidate to one day run the firm. And at the party, uh, Justice Barrett is, you know, mingling with a lot of Jones Day lawyers, including Noel Francisco, the former Solicitor General, now a top Jones Day partner, who oversees uh, people, oversees lawyers who at that very moment had an open active case before the Supreme Court, which, you know, days after this party gets uh, decided in favor of Jones Day's client. And I don't think there's causation there. I'm not, I don't think it's, because Amy Coney Barrett went to a party, she therefore that that in any way influenced your vote. I don't, I don't think there's any indication of that. But I think it's very telling the way that uh, these kind of social networks and professional networks overlap extensively. And it's these, a lot of these people are cut from very similar cloth. They clerked for the same justices. Often Scalia, who himself was a Jones Day lawyer, and. Um, and so it really it is a reflection, I think, of the enormous sway that Jones Day uh, wields and the enormous impact that it's already had. But Leonard Lee, of course, is a prominent figure among the Federalists, and he helped do that list along with McGahn. There's a, more than a whiff of conservative Catholicism and, and Opus Dei amongst this crowd. So it's pretty amazing. And obviously in polite societies, you don't talk about religion or politics, but it's hard not to notice that the the conservative majority on the court are all very conservative Catholics as well. So is is that something that's come across your radar? Yeah. I mean, in, I, just to be fair, like there are, you know, I'm trying to just think of this off the top of my head, but I'm there's uh, certainly Sotomayor is Catholic, and uh, it's possible I'm forgetting another. You know, there's often there are people on both the left and the right who are Catholic, and I don't definitely don't want to demonize or sound like this is about about their religion. But it also is true that jo the leaders of Jones Day and uh, include McGann in this, uh, but certainly Steve Brogan, who runs the firm, Noel Francisco, Mike Carvin, all of these people are you know they are. Ex 
very conservative Catholics and um, and they've gone to work on behalf of conservative Catholic groups. And they were, Jones Day was the law firm that was leading many of the legal challenges against Obamacare during uh, you know, around 2012, 2015, in that time period. And they were bringing suits on behalf of a bunch of Catholic organizations. And it, so there's definitely... A, and 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 some of Jones Day's, some of Steve Brogan's allies within the firm even have told me that the key to understanding Brogan is basically understanding that he is a hardcore, very religious and very conservative Catholic. And that that kind of animates the way what he does and how he sees the world. And again, you know, different people have different political beliefs and certainly different people have different religious beliefs. So I want to be clear that, that I don't mean that even as a criticism. That, but I think it's a reflect. It's an accurate ref- reflection of reality, and I, I think it helps explain the the way that Brogan and Brogan's firm have been behaving in in recent years. Yeah, I mean, I bring it up only because, as you pointed out, David, that there's great diversity within the Catholic Church itself, but there's also a broader diversity within religion in, in this country, and the idea that the courts are dominated by one particular group of conservative Catholics. It's pretty strange. And then on the other issue that we were talking about, we mentioned Judge Cannon earlier, and she, of course, was a Federalist. And if she doesn't come to her senses, the DOJ offered her a polite way out. The DOJ then moves on to the 11th Circuit, and six out of the remaining 11 judges on that uh, on the 11th Circuit are Trump appointees. So there, you can see the success yep. of uh, Don McGahn's project. No, and the, the, the success is, of his project is really, it's evident there, but it's really evident in virtually any federal appeals case anywhere in the country at this point. And he, the, and something like one quarter of the federal appellate bench turned over during the Trump administration. And that is in large part a testament to the almost single-minded devotion that McGahn, along with help from people like Leonard Leo and Mitch McConnell, brought to the task of remaking the judiciary. And they, they were very successful at accomplishing that. And the effects of that are going to be felt for years, if not decades, to come. And of course, Jones Day has done work for Russian oligarchs, I guess, washing reputations and perhaps laundering money. Jones Day is one of the many law firms, big corporate law firms that had until fairly recently been doing a lot of work for in Russia and for companies owned by Russian oligarchs. And I think there was, you know, as with everything in Russia, there was, I think there was a fair amount of suspicion attached to that, at least in hindsight. And, and Jones A to its credit, well, I shouldn't even say to its credit, Jones A in fairness to it got out of Russia for the most part before it became cool to do something before law firms did it. I think it got out in 2019. So, but long before uh, the invasion of Ukraine. Um, but certainly there's, I, I just wanted a thing to say here, which is that the focus of the book is largely on Jones Day, but it's intended as a critique, I think, of the entire legal industry. And so there, Jones Day, there's a lot of, I think, things about Jones Day in this book that will make people arch their eyebrows. But there's often as many things about other huge law firms that will surprise and perhaps trouble 
leaders. And a lot of that's in the book, but there's, I hope that one of the effects of this book is that a lot more people in the media will start scrutinizing and digging into the inner operations and the work of big corporate law firms other than John Stavies. I think it's an area that really deserves public scrutiny and public accountability. But just in closing, they, Jones Day did, of course, uh, work against the Mueller investigation into Trump's ties to Putin. Yeah, and they represented the Trump campaign in defending the Mueller investigation and in defending, uh, and I think trying to derail some of the congressional investigations into Russia's activities in the 2016 election. So, but I want to be clear here, and I certainly don't want to come across as an apologist for Jones Day, but look, in that, that, that's one of those cases or situations where they're representing an entity, the Trump campaign, that's actually accused of serious or under investigation for serious, perhaps criminal wrongdoing. And in a case like that, absent evidence that they were doing something, that the lawyers were doing something really improper in that representation, I think that's actually an example of one of those situations where there probably is, the Trump campaign probably does have a right to competent legal counsel. So I'm not really that troubled by the fact that they were defending Trump on the Mueller investigation or this congressional investigation, because that is what good lawyers do. And that, that was essentially a criminal investigation. And what, what concerns me a lot more are the cases where Jones Day or other law firms like Jones Day are using the connections they have within, say, the Trump administration to get special access for a client or get special treatment for a client like Walmart, where which is under investigation and where Jones Day ends up you know, kind of strong arming federal prosecutors by using the, the uh, this network of former Jones Day lawyers who were were in the upper echelon of the Trump administration's Justice Department. And so to me, th- there is a line to draw or maybe not a line to draw, but there's a distinction, an important distinction between work where they are actually representing a client that's in criminal jeopardy versus work that is really does not work that needs to be that that any client has a reasonable expectation of receiving from their lawyers and there's plenty to draw from in that latter camp as it applies to the legal industry writ large and so i think in some ways it is it's a stronger argument to just avoid the question of these more kind of standard and i think quite possibly proper uh uh matters that they're handling on the criminal side well david enrich i thank you very much for joining us here today it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with David Enrich, who's an author and the finance editor at the New York Times. He has won numerous journalism awards, including the 2016 Gerald Loeb Award for Feature Writing. His previous books include The Spider Network, How a Math Genius and a Gang of Scheming Bankers Pulled Off One of the Greatest Scams in History, and Dark Towers, Deutsche Bank, Donald Trump, and the Epic Trail of Destruction. And his latest book just out is Servants of the Damned, Giant Law Firms, Donald Trump and the Corruption of Justice. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the Russian cutoff of gas to Europe as household energy bills skyrocket. And we'll also look into what alternative suppliers might reach Western Europe to avoid a cold winter. I was gambling in Havana. I took a little risk. Guns and money Dead, get me out of this
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Dr. Paul Sullivan, a senior fellow at the Global Energy Center of the Atlantic Council, whose current research focuses on EU energy security, EU-Russian energy relations, and Arctic energy issues. He was a full professor at the National Defense University for over 22 years, where he ran the Energy Industry Study, and he also has taught at Georgetown, the American University in Cairo and Yale. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Paul Sullivan. Thank you. I'm also teaching a class on energy and the environment at Johns Hopkins. I have to plug my new university on this as well. It's an excellent place. They now landed at number seven in the college charts. Well, you've uh, certainly been around, shall we say. But let's talk about what Ursula von der Leyen, the head of the European Commission, said in addressing the EU Parliament in Strasbourg. She insisted that Putin will fail and Europe will prevail. And of course, we know that Vladimir Putin has weaponized energy and he's cut off gas supplies to Europe and they're going to have a very cold winter. So is that bravado on her part or do you think the Europeans can get their act together in the very short period of time and where are they going to get the gas from? Well, there, there are lots of parts to that, but there's another side to this. Can Putin actually win in Ukraine? Right now, it does not look that way. And one of the best things to happen, the optimal outcome, would be that the Ukrainians have an unmitigated victory and that Putin is ousted. I suppose I can say that as people will be angry to hear that. But look at all the damage he's done, not only to Europe, to the United States, the entire world, and to many developing and poor countries that needed the wheat. And he's enhance the inflation that was already growing before the war. Can the Europeans get their act together? I think there's a pretty good chance in this situation. Uh, Let's hope for a warmer winter than, uh, let's say, in the past. Uh, uh, A couple of states have not been uh, part of the team. Uh, They may pay a heavy price for that in the future uh, once this all plays out. It's a very difficult situation and a very difficult series of trade-offs and the Europeans, most of them, I would say all but two of the countries are willing uh, to subsidize their people and help their companies survive uh, the massive energy inflation that they're going through now. And this may get much worse if it's a cold winter. And a lot of this is driven uh, by the disruptions in the natural gas supply coming out of Russia. 40% of the EU's gas came from Russia uh, before this war, and about 25% of the oil, and maybe 30% of the coal. And also, Russia uh, was, and oddly, is still a source of uh, enriched uranium for many EU countries, but they're trying to block that as well. Uh, The International Energy Agency, which is a treaty agency to enhance energy security for its members, also has written up some very good programs for the EU and the world to move away from Russian gas and oil. And that has a lot to do with uh, cutting off uh, imports, which the oil is going to be cut off as crude on December 5th and as a refined product sometime in February, possibly March, depending on how this works out. And then there's a discussion which is not clear yet uh, which could cost the Russians even further, and that's the price cap. 
that the U.S. and the Europeans are talking about. It, the details aren't there, and that's got me a bit nervous, and also the price cap may actually backfire. Uh, Russia's also found uh, consumers in India and in China. Now they're looking at Indonesia, a, a giant country in Southeast Asia, and many others. But that will not replace the EU. The EU was their biggest market for their natural gas and one of the biggest markets for their oil. Putin, right now, it is clear that he's thrown away the energy inheritance, which are those great markets that existed of Russia. And my sense is, and what I've been hearing and reading, even through the propaganda uh, from Pravda and Novestia, uh, the, the one that means truth doesn't have truth, and the one that means news doesn't have news, but the propaganda attempts by the, the government of Russia in this situation are so extreme, it leads me to conclude that they're in trouble. And also, if he threatened the EU to shut off their gas and all that, unless they take the sanctions off, these sanctions are biting. And there was also an excellent Yale report showing how the Russian economy has been damaged by these sanctions and by the behavior of Putin. They have uh, significant uh, reserves and currency in their central bank. And I, I have a feeling, taking a look at the numbers, that they're getting money from somewhere else, too, probably internally. Uh, they're squeezing uh, the Pratva and other criminals and the oligarchs to help them survive these economic stresses. But, Bratva, of course, being uh, organized crime. but. Yeah, when, this is not just organized crime. These are about as bad as bad a characters get. Right, right. And they support him and actually allegedly helped him get a nice boat, too. But that's, I don't know the exact figures or, or data on that, but I would not be surprised. What else, Ian? I was going to say that Ursula von der Leyen, the, the head of the EU, said that the sanctions are here to stay. This is time for us to show resolve, not appeasement. But, of course... You know, that's the strategy of Putin in the hope that he's hoping that in a cold winter, the Europeans, the Western Europeans will get a little wobbly and uh, start uh, complaining. And energy bills are huge now. And in the UK, it's been a big political issue. The UK government, of course, has been paralyzed and conservative government by internal struggles over the succession of uh, Boris Johnson. So they've been lagging and they they haven't dealt with the transition is so who's really dealing with the transition to other other suppliers and are there other suppliers that can meet the shortfall okay let's talk about the uk dealing with the transition uh mr reese mogg and uh, the new prime minister have both said that they're going to subsidize energy consumers and they're going to allow fracking in the UK, but it takes a long time to get gas and oil out of fracked fields. It's not something that you can instantaneously turn on, and not a whole lot of it's going to be coming out in the wintertime. Yes, they are uh, getting hammered by very high bills. Most Americans would be shocked to the point of apoplexy if they got some of the bills uh, landing. For example, one I read in uh, the, the London Times and other in the BBC, pubs and small restaurants getting bills for thousands of pounds for a month of energy. How can you survive in that? And businesses are shutting down in Germany. Some are shutting down throughout the EU. 
if the EU is going to survive this, they're going to have to deal with the debt that they're creating also. And by subsidizing, that also means where are you going to get the money from to subsidize all this? And we're talking maybe not tens of billions, more than that. It's hard to judge right now how much it's going to be. Now, throughout the entire EU, uh, there are subsidy programs. The Germans are thinking about shutting down their nuclear plants, which I think makes about as much sense as, uh, well, it makes no sense. If you're in a situation of the gas prices going through the roof and you shut down 6% of your electricity production, and that's what nuclear is in Germany, you better rethink it. Uh, France has nuclear issues. Uh, they want to fix that up and get moving with this. If anything, the Europeans could think, and this is in the long run to develop more nuclear, they need to separate themselves, as Ursula von der Leyen said, permanently from Russia as a source of energy, any energy, because they can do this again. They've caused a lot of pain. There's a lot of schadenfreude in the Kremlin right now, but now it's starting to be turned inward with these massive losses to the Ukrainians in Eastern and uh, Northeastern Ukraine. Uh, will uh, the Europeans uh, survive this? I certainly hope so in their indications they will. Where can they get the gas from? There are lots of alternatives. The United States is a big source and an increasing source of liquid natural gas. Uh, for your listeners, you cannot pipe gas in its gaseous form from the United States. You need to turn it into LNG, liquefied natural gas, and put it in ships. And those ships dock in places like Rotterdam. And then it's regasified and put into the gas system of the EU. Uh, there are ways of piping it down from Norway, piping it up from Algeria, uh, piping it in from Azerbaijan and the Baku fields. But isn't it a strange coincidence that now Azerbaijan and Armenia are at uh, a shooting conflict. There are lots of interesting coincidences happening in places where those coincidences really weren't leading up to them, like the fire in our LNG facility in Texas, like what's happening in Central Asia with the Tajiks and others. All kinds of games are being played here, Ian, and uh, your audience, in order to make uh, Putin and his cronies uh, have more leverage. Uh, but I can't imagine uh, that the Russian people can be kept in the dark for much longer to what's happening here. The truth always gets out, much like the truth about the Holomodor and how millions of Ukrainians were starved to death by Stalin. And the Ukrainians remember that. There's a reason why they don't want the Russians to take them over. There's a reason why they separated from the Soviet Union. Many of their ancestors were murdered, starved to death. Their wheat, which the Ukrainians are still growing and sending to uh, developing countries. And when I, when I heard about the Russians uh, blocking the ports, I thought, so now they're going to do the Holomodor for the third world. Well, let's see what happens after that. There's a long history of starving people in Russia when it suits the purpose of the Kremlin. This will backfire. It's a different environment for the news. 
people can pick up on things in many different ways, even if the government tries to block things. And I hope some of my words and some of my writing gets to them because this is putting Russians at risk. It's putting their economy at risk. They now can't visit the European Union. They can't get visas. They're certainly not going to be coming here. Uh, many of their ill-gotten gains of the oligarchs and others are being seized. They're super yachts. Now tell me, how can you be a normal working person or even an excellent CEO and have a 200-foot yacht with three levels and a helicopter pad? Wow. You don't do that by being legitimate. Well, in terms of alternative supplies, and you've suggested that Putin's secret police might be interfering in stoking a war between Armenia and Azerbaijan, and apparently the Armenians are complaining now that the Russians aren't helping them militarily, obviously because the Russians are overstretched in Ukraine. So Algeria and Norway are the alternatives. Uh, uh, well, what Algeria, about Qatar and these other countries? Qatar is, it... is sending a lot more to them. Mm. Uh, actually, I uh, was in the region uh, for some part of the summer, and I saw a lot of Qatari LNG tankers uh, heading north uh, through the Suez Canal, a lot more than were there before. Qatar has increased its exports. It used to be about 11%. Right now, it's probably close to 14 or 15 percent. Uh, they're even importing from Australia. Uh, they're talking with the Canadians. Of course, that's in the medium run. Another source of natural gas for the Europeans is fracking, even though many of the countries don't want to do that. Uh, there are significant natural gas and oil resources under the ground in the EU that they're not, uh, say, taking advantage of. And of course, they have uh, different trade-offs, uh, each and every one of the people in uh, leadership in the EU uh, between environmental security and energy security. Which brings me to another issue that I'm not sure a lot of people are going to believe this. But my sense is one of the goals, one of the many goals Putin had for this war is to stifle the energy transition by making people get so worried about oil, gas, and coal that they start to forget about solar power, nuclear, wind power, and efficiency. Because he saw no benefit for his country in an energy transition. Most of his export revenues and government revenues are from the export of fossil fuels. He was developing a massive series of fields and ports in the Arctic in order to export those fossil fuels. He has laughed at the people who are concerned about climate change. So in other words, I took it personally. I shouldn't have. I've been I should be talking about this in the bigger issue, and I'll get back to that. Uh, the Russians gain by having the energy transition slow down. Having a war on Ukraine, which they expected the Europeans to make that reaction. Maybe they didn't fully expect it, but the reaction happened. The prices of energy went through the roof. The prices of fossil fuels went through the roof. But there's a benefit to the energy transition from this, if people are thinking about this and they can, if they can get beyond the fear of these energy prices skyrocketing. And that is the more expensive fossil fuels are, the more competitive the alternatives are. Uh, so there's hope there. So we're looking at at least two very important clocks here, the energy security clock and the climate security clock. 
And this war has thrown off both of them and has changed perspectives for many leaders and many people. And this is dangerous, but we have to get over this and get back to the issue of what's going on in the climate, what's going on in energy security. And we have to consider most particularly vulnerable in Europe and elsewhere who will not be able to afford these energy bills. The older people, the underemployed, the unemployed, the people with uh, challenged educations, low-skilled labor and so forth. There's already energy poverty in the EU and the UK and in the United States. As energy prices go up, that energy poverty gets worse. But just to, just to end on a hopeful note, though, this is going to accelerate the transition to alternatives like solar and wind. Is that your understanding? It could if people start to get beyond the fear of these prices. Right now, what most people and most governments in the EU and here, not necessarily here because the IRA and all that, uh, not the Irish IRA, but the Inflation Reduction Act, they're looking more as where can we get more oil, gas, and coal now that we don't get it from Russia. Once they're over that, they're going to realize the risks that they were taking. And if they invest in alternative energy sources like solar and wind and batteries and pump storage and mini hydro and, and all that, including nuclear and small modular reactors, then they can separate themselves from having this risk in the future. That's one way that it can accelerate the transition. But right now, the transition has been slowed down. Well, Dr. Paul Sullivan, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Well, thank you. And uh, by the way, I just want to say one thing about the Inflation Reduction Act. Mm -hmm. This act is a big message, not only to the United States, that we're serious about the energy transition, but it should be an indicator, a symbol, a sign to the rest of the world that we have to get moving now that we're back in the game of the energy transition and focusing more on the climate. I just hope it stays that way. There's an election coming up, and I could really mess this up. Thank you, Ian. Well, thank you for joining us, Dr. Paul Sullivan, again, a senior fellow at the Global Energy Center of the Atlantic Council, whose current research focuses on EU energy security, EU-Russian energy relations, and Arctic energy issues. He was a full professor at the National Defense University for over 22 years, where he ran the Energy Industry Study, and he's also taught at Georgetown, the American University of Cairo, and at Yale, and is now teaching at Johns Hopkins University. We're going to take a brief station break and back with an assessment of whether the Ukrainian counteroffensive will rout the Russian invaders or provoke Putin to escalate to cyber or nuclear. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Emily Channel Justice, the director of the Temerity Contemporary Ukraine Program at the Ukraine Research Institute at Harvard University, a sociocultural anthropologist who has been doing research in Ukraine since 2012. Her forthcoming book is Without the State, Self-Organization and Political Activism in Ukraine, and her current research is on displaced people in Ukraine. 
Welcome to Background Briefing, Emily Channel Justice. Thank you so much. So the Ukrainian counteroffensive, particularly in the northeast, uh, in the Kharkiv Oblast, has been so successful that it has forced the Kremlin to acknowledge that it's had a defeat. But of course, the Kremlin is deflecting blame from Russian President Putin, and it's instead saying it's the fault of his military advisors. So that in itself is an interesting change, wouldn't you say, Emily? Yeah, this is really the first time that we're seeing anybody go on on record and publicly you know, calling this a war, calling this a failure, saying that something has gone wrong. I mean, just, I think it was as recently as last week that Putin was claiming Russia had not had any losses in this war since February 24th. Um, and it, there's just, it's impossible to hide what has happened in the past few weeks. Uh, and, you know, this is something that is potentially totally changing the tide, you know, not just to in favor of Ukraine, but for Vladimir Putin himself, I mean, he can deflect the blame all he wants, but at a certain point, people understand he's the one who who started this in February. So there's some very heartbreaking recordings that were done by the SBU, the Ukrainian Intelligence Service. They intercepted phone calls between Russian servicemen and their wives and girlfriends. And this is stuff that I just was listening to, and it's just absolutely heartbreaking not that the Russians aren't the aggressors, but nevertheless, these poor soldiers who whose commanders have abandoned them, they've run out of ammunition, they're being overrun. This one soldier was said he's covered in blood, he's in incredible pain, his feet and, and hands are all shot full of shrapnel. He's talking to his wife, and she's saying, go to the hospital. And they, no, there's no hospital. You know, And then eventually she said, they don't care about you. They, and he said, no, they don't. They don't give a damn. You know, they're... They've just uh, thrown us in here without ammunition, and and the soldier just bursts into. He's just crying and weeping for his wife. It's just horrible. Is that message? I mean, the reason that the Ukrainian intelligence service intercepts these calls and publishes them, presumably, is to affect the morale of the Russians. Will this message get through to them? Do you think? I mean, they're, Putin and company are trying to recruit more people. They're trying to figure out how to recruit without calling for a national mobilization. If the word gets out about what's really happening on the front, it's not going to be very helpful to Putin's recruiting efforts. No, and I think it's becoming harder and harder to hide behind the lack of information or disinformation. I mean, one of one of the key um, characteristics of the Russian military that was in Ukraine up until now is that it was largely young men who were recruited from the Far East, from Siberia, from places that are very distant from the center, from the political centers of Russia. And so it's a lot easier. Those those people are understood by the Kremlin to be absolutely expendable. And I want to make clear that they're not. They're, they're humans, too. And, and this is that attitude is completely wrong. Um, but for, for the leadership of, of the Russian Federation, you know, that's how they have treated the people who have been fighting in Ukraine so far. Um, but what we're seeing and what you point out with these intercepted phone calls is, is that they have loved ones back in Russia. And the, the huge numbers that we're seeing, I mean, the Ukrainian government is claiming over 50,000 Russian troops have been killed in Ukraine. And, and that's that's a, just an absolutely astronomical figure. You know, people's families won't stand for that. They can't, they, they can't, the Russian government can't hide from that forever. 
um, and people's families are going to start pushing back. So I think the timing of these intercepts is exactly as you say, it's, it's designed to coincide with this obvious need in Russia for more bodies. And by sharing these intercepts, you know, we can see that there's, you know, people might be less willing. Although at the same time, you know, if you look on other social media channels, when, for instance, um, over the weekend when Russia bombed the, the Kharkiv electric station, most of the Russian social media channels on Telegram were just ordinary Russians who were absolutely gleeful about the potential humanitarian catastrophe that Russia was creating in Ukraine. So I, I don't know. I mean, I think it remains to be seen. Certainly people, the veil is being lifted for some people, but there's still plenty of people who are, are true believers um, for this cause. And, and you know, maybe maybe they're going to be willing to, to sign up and volunteer. Um, it's, it's still hard to say. Well, these mill bloggers, the Russian mill bloggers it, the, who Putin tolerates, although I think they're getting a little worried about them, they're calling now for the Russians to intensify their missile campaign against Ukrainian civilians and critical infrastructure and transit routes. I mean, this flies against the claims of the of the the Kremlin that they are not targeting civilians. So there's a real bloodlust there amongst the uh, mill bloggers. I mean, Putin's problem is from the right, isn't it? From the nationalists, they're putting pressure on him to take the gloves off. That could mean intensive cyber attacks, even all escalating all the way up to nuclear. Right. And, and I think that's the big concern now. At the same time that there's Clearly, there's so much to celebrate. The Ukrainian armed forces have gone above and beyond what anybody expected with this with this offensive. It's absolutely remarkable. And I, I hope everyone takes the time to just remark and, and you know, remember that, that so many Ukrainians have given their lives for this fight already. Um, and so it is something to celebrate. But at the same time, there is still a lot of, of place for Russia to go. And um, certainly these these precise missile strikes, for instance, the, the attack on the Kharkiv power station was a precision guided missile. So we know Russia still has these capabilities. We know they're still willing to attack civilian infrastructure. Um, we do, as you mentioned, you know, that we know they have the capabilities of a tactical nuclear strike. Um, and, and certainly the cyber attacks is something that has been kind of an on and off issue throughout this, the, the past few, you know, seven months. Um, so there is still, my honestly, my, my personally, my biggest concern is that the admission of failure here is going to make Vladimir Putin more angry and it's going to push him to tr do something more dramatic because he has less to lose at a certain point. Um, he's rather ostracized already just based on so many attacks on civilians. Um, I hope that the the you know Ukra that Ukraine's Western allies are ready to continue to support Ukraine throughout whatever happens next. Um, but it, it's very still unclear how Putin will have to try to spin this in order to, honestly, in order to remain in power. And of course, he's meeting with China, Xi Jinping, who apparently wants to know what's happening in Ukraine. So right. uh, obviously, that's going to be an embarrassing meeting for Putin. But meanwhile, there may be more of a rout going on with the Ukrainian military. I mean, for example, in Crimea, on the peninsula, the Russian authorities are urging people to evacuate, and the FSB, the Russian Federal Security Service, they're selling their homes on the peninsula. You know, they they basically, FSB gets, you know, they don't even get a salary. They make money from organized crime and, and Krisha 
So obviously Putin runs a security state and he rewards his uh, Siloviki with uh, lots of money. So they bought all these houses down there on the peninsula, which is the sort of summer, the kind of Riviera for Russia. So they're selling their homes at fire sale prices, packing up and leaving the peninsula, which would indicate to me that, that the Russians are afraid that the Ukrainians could actually retake Crimea. Which, you know, it's... um. I think they probably should be at this point. I mean, that's a, obviously that's something very unexpected that even the most recent peace talk suggestions were saying that Crimea is something Zelensky would maybe have to concede on. Um, but the fact of the matter is that the, the, the few Ukrainian strikes in Crimea were so well targeted. And those, I think, are just the tip of the iceberg given Ukraine's, um, the new military capabilities that Ukraine has, thanks to military aid from, from Western allies. Um, at a certain point, you know, Crimea is no longer a safe place for Russian civilians, and, and it's not even a, a very safe place uh, for the Russian military as well. And so um, I think it's, it's uh, you know, it's an interesting shift um, that there is enough fear among Russian leaders that, you know, they'd actually encourage people to leave because once, you know, once the word gets out that they're encouraging people to leave, again, that's yet another thing that Russia can't spin in their favor. Um, The retaking of Crimea illegally in 2014 was this dramatic glorification of of the grand Russia narrative. Um, And so what's happening now is, is really uh, just very, it's, I, I don't think we can overestimate or underestimate how, um, bad or, yeah, overestimate was right the first time, how, how bad this could be for Russia. I will add, you know, the people that I, that I know who volunteered to be in the Ukrainian military in, in February, their rhetoric from the beginning was that they would take back all of the territory that had been occupied since 2014, including Crimea. So for some, you know, this was the goal all along. Um, as soon as this war started, they said, we're going to win and we're going to take our, our land back. Um, so so I think it's also very, um, it, it's really the, the kind of hoped for end point for a so, lot of people too. But in closing, it's a mixed blessing because the more success is, the more likely that Putin will get desperate. And I thank you for joining us, um, Emily Channel Justice. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I mean, speaking with Emily Channel Justice is the director of the Temerity Contemporary Ukraine Program at the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard University, a sociocultural anthropologist who has been doing research in Ukraine since 2012. Her forthcoming book is Without the State, Self-Organization and Political Activism in Ukraine, and her current research is on displaced people in Ukraine. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, 
And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.